Welcome to the Waterways World podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of hire fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. And today we are discussing a very interesting and well-documented chapter in Waterways history. With me is Mike Constable, who is an authority on the female boat trainees of World War II, who, due to labour shortages, volunteered to work on cargo-carrying boats, and in so doing, experienced a completely different side of life. Due to his friendship with well-known recruit Sonia Rolt, Mike has carried out extensive research into the topic, and he has spoken to a number of the trainees. Along the way, he has busted several myths, the biggest one relating to the pejorative term idol women, and has uncovered some fascinating insights. So, let's hear what he has to say. It would appear that the scheme to recruit women to work boats began with a, an advertisement in a national newspaper in, I think, 1942. But it actually goes back much further than that, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It goes back right as far as the First World War, actually. Really? Yeah, and the government made such a mess up of the pinching of canal boat staff um, for their war effort they ended up in a right mess at the end of the war, uh, having to transfer people back from regiments or transfer them to uh, transport regiments so they could come back to their boats. Right. Um, and, of course, when they, when they started the Second World War, or when the Second World War started, they quickly realised that there was going to be a shortage of boat crews and it took a little while into the war before they knew what an answer. They tried several answers. They tried recruiting from around ex-boaters. They'd already upset the system by introducing uh, reserved occupation, but only for over 25-year-olds. So an awful lot of the, the family boaters, children, if you like, had been taken off to war and along with a lot of the maintenance staff and the canal committees that they were still using tried to recruit from, say, other other company voters or, or ex-company voters. They tried recruiting from Ireland, um, but the Irish scheme didn't really work. Uh, they got, got some volunteers but they found they could get more money elsewhere and rather less hours. So that sort of disappeared, and they were left with a hell of a problem. Mm. In 1942, they were really sort of short of uh, crews, and there's a splendid newspaper report of a cabinet meeting which says they could, they could work, they could move far more cargo if they'd got the crews. At the same time... Well, a year after it happened, the uh, Daphne March had been working uh, her, well, actually her brother's boat on the Worcester and Birmingham Canal, and she, after the after the aqueduct in Bourneville was destroyed in the end of the in the Bardecker raids at the end of 1940, 
Uh, when the canal was rebuilt, reopened, Daphne wrote an advert in the Times asking for really female volunteers to work with her. She was working with her mum. This was on the Heather Bell? This was on the Heather Bell. Narrowboat, yeah. And, and, and were they a carrying family? No, not at all. They were family solicitors. Right. Christopher March um, was a solicitor. He, he'd already run away to sea at the age of 14 from school and been brought back rather sharpish. Um, but he was, he was fascinated by canals. He was the equivalent of several people I won't name, but who were quite well known on the canal, uh, who would hang around boats all every minute they'd got and catching lifts and things like that. And he, when the war broke out, he promptly gave up his solicitoring and went off to the Russian Navy, mm-hmm. and leaving his his sister to operate the boat. Uh, she say I put this advert in the Times for crew. Uh, several she had I think it was seventy replies to her original letter advert, and one of the people who replied was actually the Minister of War, or Minister of War Transport, um, who was very aware of this problem, and he tried to persuade Daphne to change to training others, as she was obviously so good at it. Uh, and moved to the Grand Union. Well, Daphne wasn't keen on operating on the Grand Union. She was working quite happily on the Worcester and Birmingham and going up to Wales Newport and places like that. And, but she was working mainly for the Townshend Mill Company in, in Worcester, and she was delivering up to Birmingham and taking coal back down the mill uh, and she suggested that one of her trainees if you like um, join the scheme and the, the the minister was quite keen on the idea but Molly Trail who was the first sort of suggestion had left boating and I think was working in a hospital Okay. Um, so it took a little time to get anything to, off together. Heather Bell had an accident on the seven and came very close to sinking. Um, Molly wasn't, well, they managed to get it onto the, the shallow stuff before it went right under. Um, and it obviously needed repair. So Daphne had to lay off the, the staff she'd got at that point, who was Eileen Gayford. Eileen Gayford was the, what was she? She was the sister of a high-ranking RAF officer. Her brother-in-law was an even higher-ranking RAF officer. Molly Trail's husband at that moment, but not for much longer, was also a very high-ranking RAF officer. And the officers most clearly played a part in this uh, because Molly suggested to Daphne that Eileen Gayford would be a possible crew member and that indeed was the case. They, they worked together for a bit. Eileen Gayford later became known as Kit Gayford, didn't she? That was a Birmingham problem. Everybody that in Birmingham refers to 
any anybody else really, not not just a relation, but practically everybody as our kid or the kid. Um, I only didn't like being called kid, and it eventually got modified to kit. Yeah, she found more acceptable. But it is true, everybody in Birmingham does refer to any other relation, older or younger, as the kid. It's certainly worth pointing out that Kit Gayford wasn't actually a kid, or sort of a kid would suggest somebody in their teen, teenage years or early adulthood, I guess. But she was a bit more was, than that. She yeah. was definitely a bit more than that, yeah. But uh, she became quite a legend, didn't she? On the uh, on yes, the team. she was certainly the best known of the trainers. Yeah. Um, so, so how did the program get to the point where it was actually a, a viable thing? Well, in early. Or very late 41, early 42, the, the government were really desperate. As I say, they, this report in 42 was suggesting they needed lots and lots and lots of volunteers. Um, but it was still a, a volunteer thing. And Molly Trail had persuaded the Grand Union company, Canal Carrying Company to try and work a scheme, a training scheme. Grand Union had a bit of a problem trying to find someone who was prepared to take on women to work with them. But eventually, the Albert Sibley and his wife didn't have any children and they could see this was going to be a help. They'd get extra money for training and also they would have help to work the boats, which was supposedly... Well, it was obviously going to be a good thing. And mm. um, as soon as the weather improved, she was a bit grotty at the start of 42, a lot of ice. But as soon as the weather improved, the Molly and Kit started with the Sibleys. And after a couple of months, they decided they were suitable to take on a pair of boats on their own. And they started off with the Edgware and the Saltley as a training run. And they, they worked in tandem with the Sibleys for a while until mm. they got going. And then the recruits were already sort of volunteering. They'd been pestering the Grand Union for a while. And they'd been, been put off until the, the ice had gone and everything else was sorted out. And there they sort of started training themselves. And the first first two trainings, only one felt they could carry on. But mm. then it soon got that they'd got two good good trainees, and those two trainees at the end of another month or so um, went off to start another pair of boats. So we got three pairs, and then kit took on a pair of her own, Battersea and Eutoxita, and took one of the other good trainees as her mate. And it worked on a sort of trainer, mate and trainee basis until we'd got a reasonable number working. You mentioned that one of the first two people who uh, were recruited to the scheme left. There was quite a 
a high um, uh, kind of fail rate, wasn't there? I say fail rate, but you know what I mean. Um, high turnover is the point. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's a better word. Okay. Yes, indeed. Um, yes, it, it was a case that it was a bit too too hard work for some. Uh, it does require a little bit of strength and effort, as you can imagine. A lot of them just weren't set up for living in small cabins and even with the the, the sort of extra addition of, a, of two days off every time you've done a, a good trip, two trips, um, it just wasn't for them. And I, it's not for everybody. What kind of women did this scheme attract? It wasn't a type. It was a, across the sort of whole spread of society. Although I think it would be fair to say that it was more to the upper end of society than the lower end for the very good reason that in 1941 the government had already introduced labour schemes for women. They'd known from before the war they were going to need to use women. Uh, there's a 19, I think it's a 1938 document that suggests to various, all, well, all the companies, they needed to think seriously about how they could employ women. And this started up in, in 41, registration. And there were, there were two levels of registration. There was mobile and immobile. And if you were married with children, then the chances are you didn't want to move around. So you were in the immobile category. If you were in the mobile category, you could practically be sent anywhere and moving around all the time. So the lower classes, for want of a better word at the moment, tended to go into the industrial jobs or the forestry, land army, forestry army schemes. And indeed, in late 1941, they brought in national service for the for women, 18 to 40s, into the services. And a lot of the women had gone down that road. I think there were 9,600 9, ladies wow. already in, in some sort of employment. So when the scheme came into being in 42, there were rather less women available anyway. And the, the recruiting was largely word of mouth and the occasional magazine article. Mm. And it went on from there. Uh, I mean, I, I've got records of widows, war widows, hairdressers. Several of them came from the camouflage department, the government camouflage department, and they'd camouflage themselves out of work. By the end of '42, they'd done such a good job that the there wasn't the need for the camouflage department, and they were seeking seeking work. So the whole whole really the whole range of society, but yeah. tending towards the the middle class, if you like. Yeah, because I, I think of some like Sonia Rolt, uh, well, then Sonia South, I think. Yes, um, who was a living in Knightsbridge and was an actress. So it wasn't, you know... Well, not, not strictly true. She wasn't an actress? Trained as an actress, 
when yeah. she, she when was, she was she not working in repertory theatre? Well, she may have still been trying to, but the the repertory theatre would just about dried up. Oh, during the war, yes, of course it would have, yes. So yes, she, I, she, I'm just pointing to her background there. Indeed. Sonia was actually working in the Hoover aircraft factory, which is the same Hoovers as the vacuum cleaners and all the rest of it. But they were building aircraft. Yeah. And she was in the air inspection department in, in Hoover, probably working on Lancasters. Wow. And they weren't key to lose her. No. She was very good at the job apparently and they weren't at all keen to lose her did she not have to see a psychiatrist before indeed well yeah. a, a, certainly a doctor's report to get her out of the building yeah as, as actually did emma smith or elspeth Horsmith, as she was commonly known then what was emma smith doing before we should point she out was, that uh, emma smith uh, wrote a um the maiden's trip maiden's trip yeah that came later of course Yes, she was working as a secretary for MI5. Oh, wow. And she also had to to get a medical to get out. If you're already in a job and you were good at it, then probably they weren't, the bosses wouldn't be keen on releasing you. So it's a bit of a, it's a mixed blessing in a way. Mm. Some of the the trainees could come straight from school. Uh, They weren't weren't keen on the youngsters because they didn't think they were strong enough, but... Mm. It all went round. How long did the training last for? And what form did it take? The training took the form of a couple of trips, really, on a pair of boats with a trainer and probably a trainer's mate and two trainees at a time, although sometimes it worked with three trainees, uh, depending on who was available at the time. And they would start by getting to know the boats and perhaps do a, a run down, uh, down to Brentford and back or something like that. Or they might go straight onto a loaded boat. The trainer would teach them, as a, as a very basic start, they would teach them to splice and some of the um, engine. The engine details were usually done by one of the Ballsbridge management just to sort them out on how an engine works and what they should do. Uh, they weren't clearly weren't mechanical, so they had to be shown how to start the engine, how to oil it and all that sort of thing. But then they went off on a, a training run and they would take it in turns to steer the, steer the motor, steer the butty, do the lock wheeling and take it in turns to go round. And when... If it was Kit, certainly when she when she'd been with them for two or three days, so she'd got an idea of how they were working, she might leave them and do the lock wheeling. Uh, normally, of course, it would take time to get used to that, so she thought she could leave them on the boats, and it was only the better one she would do that with to start with anyway. And mm. um, it would be up to to Birmingham with a load, could be anything from steel to sausage meat. Uh-huh. Uh, it was all all very carefully organised. Would this be from Limehouse or Brentford or, or both? Normally Limehouse. They did, right. they did do some runs down to Brentford, but most of the traffic was coming out of the docks. So they were heading into East London, presumably during... Was it, well, it, would this be after the Blitz? 
uh, where are we? We're in. It's after the worst of the Blitz, yes. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there was still, there was still the, well, the rockets for a start. Um, the doodle bugs. Yeah, mm. uh, and the later the V twos. Yeah. I mean, the V two fell into um, the very edge of live ash, and indeed did damage Harley Gayford's pair. Completely blew the doors off the butty, and shrapnel went through the cabin. It was it wasn't exactly the nicest place to be. Wasn't City Basin bombed too? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, City Basin copped it. Mm. And that was during. I'm sure I read that in one of the one of the accounts of the uh, female volunteers that, that happened well, nearby. So I presume that was the horribly titled Idle Women has the account of the rocket landing in. Yes. Yes. Let's, can we just talk about the Idle Women controversy, I suppose you can call it. I mean, I've refrained from... Well, it nearly slipped in, but I've refrained from using it. Um, myth. There's a, it's a myth, isn't it? Yes, that's, that's the right word for it. Susan Wolfitt, who was a very late into the scheme trainee, wife of, or soon-to-be ex-wife of Donald Wolfitt, um, had two, two youngest children who were at uh, boarding school. Not that young, obviously. Um, so she was available to work the boats during term time. And she she got in first with a, a book on the subject. Uh, she was talking with her, her daughter, Harriet, uh, about the badge that late trainees were given, which had the letters IW on the badge, which stood for Inland Waterways on National Service. And Harriet came up with the title of Idle Women, the IW on the badge. Susan thought that was a, a great joke and used it as the title for her, her book, and she could, therefore the book became known as Idle Women. And because she got the story in first, the name stuck. Right. She's quite clear about the origin of the name in the first edition, and you can find it in in the in the second edition. But you have to hunt for it in the second edition. On the first edition, it's quite clearly on the in the dust wrapper. Um, but if you buy one of the the very latest versions, you probably won't find it at all. So you don't think idle women was ever used? I mean, the, the myth is that the, it was a disparaging term invented by the, uh, dreamed up by the working boaters. Is that, was that never the case? Canal boat women trainees might have had an expletive in front of them. Yeah. Ex-trainees or something like that, but idle women was never heard of during the war. Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of Waterways Live, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, 
our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our Boat Search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. What was the relationship between the working boaters and the trainees like? With suspicion, to start with, the, I think the, although they weren't working with them, I think the FMC boaters were probably the most suspicious. The so women... The fellows Morton and Clayton. Yes, yeah, indeed. Big, one of their foremost carriers, wasn't it? Yeah, well, they, they were really the only large carrier uh, working on the Grand Union at the same time as the Grand Union Canal Carrying Company. Uh, I think they were suspicious on two levels. Because of the the less literate standing of the boaters, they didn't really understand the reserved occupation and they were a little afraid that the women would be replacing their, their men would be taken off to war. And the women, I think, were rather suspicious on the grounds that they were rather attractive young ladies coming to pinch their husbands. Mm. But the, the Grand Union seemed to have very mixed views. I think some of the some of the men were a little bit anti. I don't think it was so much they were worried about losing their their jobs to the war, because in fact at the beginning of the war the the, the men were still able to volunteer, reserved occupation or not. But at the start of the war there was they were still able to volunteer. It was only when it got rather more desperate that they they kicked in rather more firmly with the reserved occupation. But all of the records that you can find suggest that the the boaters accepted the trainees for what they were, uh, a help in with, with the war effort. The children of some of the regular boaters got more upset as they got older because they were, didn't seem able to understand that the exactly that trainees were doing uh, a good job for the war effort they weren't a threat to the the family and of course all the publicity that the women were getting was aimed at in so much at recruiting more of them that they couldn't understand what all the publicity was about mm. uh, the, 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 their families weren't getting and that that left us that still left a mark they're still sort of boaters children or knowing their sort of 80s, 90s, uh, who were less understanding of the scheme than the boaters themselves were. And what, do they feel that too much credit has been given to them? Yes, indeed, far too much credit, because you, you never hear about the, the boaters, you only ever hear about the, the trainees. Is that something you feel, Mike? It's, it's a, a valid point, but you have to understand that it, the needs must. They needed recruits. They couldn't get enough recruits at this time. And all the publicity was aimed at increasing the numbers. How did the women generally adapt to the work? Either very well or not at all. Yeah. That's what added to the turnover. Mm. You know, they, some people were away before they'd done the first night. I'd found them creeping out of the cabin during the night and disappearing. Uh, it just wasn't for everybody. But the ones that settled in really did settle in well. 
and there were, there were probably more of them than uh, most people realise. Yeah. I, I know for a fact that there were over a hundred started training. Uh, they didn't all finish by any means, but we must have, and because of the turnover, we must have had sixty or seventy that actually completed the training and started boating. Again, they might not have stayed for forever, mm. but we know we know for a fact that in 1944 there were 15 pairs of boats working, which means around 45 working at one time. Now, given the turnover, that obviously, and there was a turnover for, for things like um, accidents, illness, I mean, there were a number of broken legs, for example. Right. And people didn't go back. If you know, if they'd, well, very rare one would go back after a, an injury involving a broken bone. Yeah, and there were illnesses too. Yes, I mean, there were, obviously were. I mean, Molly Trial was on and off the boat when she was, when she still was a trainer. She was on and off the boat quite a lot through illness. And she was a little bit older than most of them anyway, and she seemed to suffer. Having read several accounts of the trainees, it certainly seems to me that those that did stick with the scheme came to really enjoy it and found a sense of freedom, independence and purpose on the canals. Is that your view? Oh, yes, I'm certain that's right. People like Emma Smith uh, was very much a free spirit. She went on to become a quite a successful author anyway. She worked for television companies and that sort of thing. She certainly liked the... Um, she got in trouble with her mum for wandering around with no shoes on. It wouldn't, wouldn't have happened before the war. She would turn up to... When she got on on leave, she'd wander around without her shoes on, as she did on the boats, actually. Right. Uh, um, except when they were really working. Of course, they obviously put... Have you met any of these? Uh, I've trainees? contacted about about a dozen, right? But um, not 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 met as many as that. I've been in contact, I say, with quite a few, and quite a few of the the children of the ones that weren't around. Right. Well, in order um, to get their stories. Indeed. I yeah. mean, the Audrey Harper, who was one of the A team, one of the best known teams. Um, when she she married just after the war and went to South Africa with her husband who was a doctor um, and then later on they, well, they spent a short time back in, in Liverpool uh, while her husband specialised in tropical medicine and then they went to Tasmania and they spent the next 40-odd years in Tasmania. Both died in Tasmania. Mm. Um, you can't just nip over to Tasmania for a cup of tea. No. So we had to have a an email mm. session. Uh, Christian Vlasto, who again was a, a doctor's daughter, um, married a BBC uh, translator. And they moved back to Pakistan, where her husband came from. Um, and she 
again died in Pakistan. You can't nip over to Pakistan for a cup of tea. Yeah, sure. But what kind of information were you getting from these? Well, Audrey, I've got sort of various of her written bits and pieces. Um, Do any providing insights into the work and the life? Well, yes and no. I mean, I I think I have to say yes, uh, because they were... They've been quite forthcoming. There was no, mm. no sort of hiding behind things. And they, they were all, as we said earlier, gaining freedom from doing this role. They were meeting different sort of sort of people. Mm. Uh, they had a lot of freedom. Mm. As long as they sort of did the job, they, weren't, they didn't have a foreman standing over them. Yeah. They went in some smoky office. You know. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, okay, the rations were sometimes a bit of a problem, but they managed. The ice was a problem occasionally. They, they, again, they managed. We've spoken about the relationship between the trainees and the working boaters. Yeah. And we've also mentioned Sonia South, who actually married a working boater and stayed on the cut after the war, didn't she? Indeed. Yeah, she, she before the war ended... Just before, I think they were already beginning to realise that there wasn't going to be the need for the volunteers. And Sonia and her colleagues, more more actresses or um, certainly that that type, um, decided they it wasn't for them any longer. And just before the forty five election, they they handed the the boats back. Sonia has always had a knack of persuading blokes to do sort of things for them, help help them. And George Smith was a, an eligible bachelor at the time, and he'd been known to give them the help with clothing up and things like that on the boats, type putting the covers over and all the other nasty things that the girls really didn't like putting the cloths on because it was a very messy job. The Stockholm chart tended to sort of dissolve a little in the water and you got what they always refer to as gravy running everywhere. Right. Horrible brown stuff. Yes. Um, and she obviously got on very well with George and they were married in mid-45. And they went to work for actually the Samuel Barlow Company based at Braunston. The only volunteer that I've discovered that did actually stay on the boats... Was Sonia. Was Sonia. How, how long did she stay on the boats for? Another five or six years, I think. Uh, it didn't... The, the canal was, was really running down. You know, the early 50s, it was... Although it's still going, it was definitely running down. I think... She'd probably already, well, she'd come to, come to know Tom Rolt through the um, IWA uh, because she was a very photogenic and literate person to talk to. And she'd been conned into doing various activities for the IWA. Um, George and Sonia used to take the IWA out in their pair of boats as a, as a trip. And there's a, a sort of video evidence of this going on mainly in London 
I say she she must have come across Bolt in this, and I think it, yeah, they just drifted apart. And Tom and Sonia drifted together. There weren't any children, so that didn't get in the way. Did any of the women have any contact with the waterways after the war? Because I presume um, it, I presume it all, all just did it all stop after the war immediately? Was it sort of, you know, church bells ringing and then carrying came to an end, or did it slowly sort of? They were still was, still recruiting on VE Day. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yes, they were still recruiting then, and the, in fact, the team that were re- recruiting were actually doing their training on VE Day. Went on to work a pair of boats. Okay, all right. Um, so recruiting didn't stop until a little bit later, but the rundown started once, as soon as the war was over. There wasn't the demand for the war materials anyway. Things got back to normal very quickly. The men did start returning from the war when they were demobbed. And so the, the need collapsed and it just came to an end. There wasn't the work for the ladies, and the, the schemes never officially closed. It just ran down. There's some some doubt as to who was the last team working. Kit Gayford kept on going to the last in the Grand Union Canal Canning Company, but sometime in forty the end of 44 or 45, can't remember the exact date, Samuel Barlow's took on, on hire from Grand Union, two pairs of boats with crew. Christian Blasto, Elizabeth Glazier worked one pair. Margaret Ford worked another pair. Can't remember her crew now. And Barlow's continued with their hire fleet or high boat, for a, a similar sort of time. So it mm. might have gone on an, another couple of months for the ladies working in the Barlow boats. But they were actually Grand Union boats on hire. Yeah, I've got it. What was the volunteers' contribution to the war, Mike? It's quite hard to define exactly. If I take one example... Of Audrey Harper, Evelyn Hunt, and Anne Blake on the Sun and Dipper, they made over a over fifty round trips from up to Birmingham. And I got these figures from Audrey. And if you work out that was taking fifty tons or thereabouts of coal, at least twenty five times that. Not to mention the stuff they were taking north it comes to quite a sizable tonnage now if you multiply that by the number of pairs and if you limit it to 10 pairs we're looking at quite a tonnage remember there's only about 90 95 pairs working uh, for grand union at that time so if you take out 10 of those were down to 8, you know, it's, it's an eighth of the, or, or more, of the total. Yeah. Now, I would suggest that's not insignificant, at least. Yeah. It's certainly a contribution. Well, I think so. 
How did you become involved in this topic, Mike? <laughs> well, I suppose basically it's down to Sonia. Um, I first encountered Sonia in the early 80s when BW, as it was, were selling out Banbury to the developers and Tooley's Dock was under threat and Sonia was a friend of the English Heritage Commissioner at the time and Neil Cossons and I was also in one of the societies that both Neil and Sonia belonged to the Newcomen Society and someone pushed me into saying my piece about the the closure of Banbury Dock um, my great-grandfather worked for the Oxford Canal Company on the bank, not on the, not on boats. Um, and so I'd got connections with Bambury, still have. And I got to know Sonia then on various committees, societies we both belonged to, and we, we became sort of firm friends. And I said she always was good at persuading people to do, blokes to do things for her. Mm. And I, I ended up on a, on one occasion with it, on a coach trip to Stanley Pant, Stanley Pont Large. Uh, I, I was the one of house. the the house. Where she uh, left it? Is it in Gloucestershire? Yes. Yeah. I say so I was coach load, and I was one of the guests, and I ended up taking cream scones around the garden. <laughs> trays and trays of scones and cups of tea around the garden to the rest of the party <laughs> um, because I, I, I knew her very well by that time yeah. um, and then when I, I was, going to say, was retired from my, my job in Birmingham I was arm twisted by a, a f- another friend into going and helping with the Canal Museum at Stoke Brewer and my first task there was to change one of the exhibitions. And we were, we were working on the, that exhibition at the time that BW and TWT decided to unveil a, a plaque to what they wanted to call the Ard Womb, which I managed to sideline. At an event in Stoke Bruin, which w- would have been the opening of the this new exhibition, uh, the British at War uh, event, uh, the first one at Stoke, and so they again, I was I was arm twisted into doing a little bit more on the training scheme, just filling out what I'd already done a bit for the based on what I knew from Sonia and. My first copy of Maiden's Trip I acquired in 1970 um, from a second-hand bookshop. And I'd read Idle Women a couple of years later when we, when we were in Birmingham. Got, it is worth pointing out there's a lot of literature. It's very well documented, this period of history, isn't it? It's fairly well documented. I wouldn't say the scheme is well documented yet. Um, there's an awful lot out there still to be found. Right. But it's sort of for first-hand accounts of 
uh, what what it was like to be a, a trainee during the war. Well, there, there are four. A number more. to pick. Yeah. Um, Do you have a favourite of the four? Maiden's Trip, without question. Yeah, I agree. It's brilliant. Uh, it's the only one that's not diary based, and okay, it's faction rather than um, fiction, um, but the stories in it happened. Uh, as, but not all in one trip. Uh, after the uh, the opening of the the exhibition, the trainees, some of the trainees were invited, and I was given the job of minding them and taking them round the exhibition oh, right. after the speechy bits. And that's when I got to know four of them. I mean, I already knew Sonia, and another three. And the, the families of two more turned up to the exhibition opening by invitation. Mm. And I was talking to the four ladies uh, by the exhibition. I expanded the exhibition to another, another three panels. And we got talking and they, they sort of really persuaded me to get a little bit more involved, to be a bit more, to tell their side of the story rather than the story that was the, going the rounds, including the myth of the, the, the idle women. Yeah. And so I got to know, having accepted the challenge, I got to know Emma Smith very well. And so I got told actually who the, the people were that she combined into... Nanette and yeah, and so I know the stories behind the stories, and I got to know Olga, who was actually the most most unreliable of the the four. And there's now a book about Olga, which I think I probably wrote most of the the chapter on the canal life. Um, in conjunction with the, obviously the author, um, and I picked up another two or three contacts who who weren't able to get to the exhibition, uh, and again, lots of email correspondence, lots of letters, hmm. um, and I sort of carried it on. So you give you now give talks on the topic. I do. I've done quite a few over the years. I did one last Saturday. First one after a long gap. Do you ever get asked unusual questions or anything ever take you by surprise? Or Oh, yeah, I get lots of those. Um, but I'm pretty good at thinking on my feet. <laughs> um, most of them concern the relationship of the the women with the, the boaters. Yeah. Because they it gets picked up on that the boaters didn't like them. And I, I always feel that's total rubbish. Yeah. There, there were obviously episodes, um, but in many cases the boaters were grateful. And certainly as far as the, the government were concerned, they were very grateful because they'd got a big big hole that needed filling. Of course, yeah. Okay, Mike. Is there anything I've we've not touched on that you think's important? I think I would add, really, that the women themselves didn't regard themselves as special. Mm. 
they thought they were doing a job that needed doing, which they most of them enjoyed doing, but they didn't feel at all special uh, at the time or afterwards. And some of them didn't actually appreciate all the publicity and fuss they were getting. Yeah. At least one of my contacts wouldn't allow me to release her name. And I think she just didn't, didn't want the extra publicity. She was a lovely person. I, I spent time, spent over a week with her in a, in a retreat. Um, and things, generally, they didn't, didn't want to be made a fuss of. Um, I've been asked why there's no memorial to them at Arawas in the memorial, you know, the memorial gardens at Arawas. Yeah. And it was it was the women themselves that said we don't really want one. It's not we're not special. We're just doing a job. Mm. Do you think they were special? I think they were very special. Yeah, but not, but not at the expense of the boating and the boating families. They were they were special in they took on a job that was blooming difficult, mm. and they did a good job. But you know, not not at, the, not at the expense of anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great summary of the role of the trainees to end our conversation on Mike. Um, so thank you so much for your time today and offering such fascinating insights. It's much appreciated. Thank you. For 45 years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. Visit abcholidaycottages.com.